If your New Year's resolution was to become an expert in Zephaniah chapter 3, you have come to the right place. Uh, I realize that's unlikely, but uh, we are going to be in this passage here, this chapter, for a couple more weeks because we kind of sped through the first couple chapters of the book, but chapter 3, you really have to savor it. This chapter is so dense with truth. It's so full of treasures to encourage us and wisdom to guide us. It is a chapter worth knowing, every bit as much as the other great chapters of the Bible, like John 3 or Romans 8. Zephaniah chapter 3 is one worth knowing. This passage is a prophecy. It's a prophecy about us. It's a prophecy about what's happening here this very day, this morning. It's a prophecy about today in the sense of the era of history in which we live. It's about the period of history between the first and final comings of Jesus. When Zephaniah in chapter 3 refers to that day, he's referring to the day of Messiah's rule. He's referring to that time when Messiah comes into the world and what his coming would accomplish. So let me set the stage for you here as we dig into this passage. What's going on in this chapter? We've seen what verse 9 is all about. We spent a lot of time there on verse 9. Zephaniah promises that God will change the speech of the nations, and the result is going to be that all the nations will call upon the name of the Lord. To change their speech means to change their confession about God. In fact, that word for change could also be translated as convert. God is promising to convert the peoples, to convert the nations to himself, to Christianize the nations. Nothing less than that is promised. And we saw how this began to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where people called upon the name of the Lord in a wide variety of languages. What's interesting to note here is that this expectation that the nations will convert, that the nations will be drawn to the Lord, that when Messiah comes, God's blessing will flow out to all the peoples of the earth. That is an expectation that is found all over the Old Testament. On page after page after page, you will find this expectation in the Old Testament scriptures. This expectation that when Messiah comes, it will begin a process of transforming the nations, of redeeming the nations, of bringing the nations under the ever-increasing government of God's Messiah. And so, for example, Psalm 2 says that when the Christ is enthroned after his resurrection, he will inherit the nations. He will rule the nations with his rod of iron, and he will inherit the nations as his redemptive possession. Isaiah chapter 2 says in the new covenant age, so the days in which we live, Isaiah predicts the mountain of the Lord's house will be established and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Isaiah pictures all nations streaming into the house of God, streaming into the temple of God. It will be exalted above all the other mountains, the the mountain of God, uh, the mountain of God's house. Isaiah says, many peoples will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. This is a picture of Gentile nations coming to worship God, much like what you have in Zephaniah, much like what happens when Jesus is born and the Gentile magi come to worship, much like what's happening today where Gentiles all over the world have streamed into churches. We've streamed into the house of God to worship him. Isaiah's prophecy is coming to fulfillment this very day. 
Isaiah 19, another passage of this sort. Isaiah 19 says that in the future, the cities of Egypt, Egypt was one of the archetypical enemies of God, of course, because they had held the Israelites in slavery. Isaiah 19 says in the future, the cities of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. An interesting reference here to language being changed. It doesn't mean that Egyptians will come to speak Hebrew, but it means they will come to confess faith in Israel's God. They'll speak the language. They'll speak the same theological language. They'll confess the same truths about God that Israel does. Isaiah says they will cry out to the Lord. It says the Lord will be known to the Egyptians in that day and Egyptians will offer him sacrifice. And then Isaiah goes on to say the same thing about the Assyrians. It's a picture again of Gentile nations being brought into the kingdom of God. Gentile nations coming to know the Lord and know his blessing. Assyria and Egypt being converted as representative of other nations. What's Isaiah prophesying? He's prophesying the future conversion of Gentiles. He's saying the world will be gospelized. The nations will be transformed. The Old Testament promises this again and again. The question before us today is this. How? How will God do this? How will God bring this promised future to pass? How will God take the good news of Messiah's kingdom into the nations and convert the nations so their speech about God is transformed? How will God make the nations Christ's inheritance? How will God make the nations Christ's disciples? How will God make the nations his worshipers? That's the question before us. How will God do this? And Zephaniah answers. The answer Zephaniah gives us, as we'll see in a moment, is the church. That's really how we can sum this up. It is through the church that God will do these things. The church grows through the ministry of the church. When the people of God are faithful, the church grows. When the people of God are faithful, these kinds of promises, these kinds of prophecies come to fruition. God is going to use the church to convert the nations. God is going to use the church to change the nations. This really should not have come as any surprise to Zephaniah's original audience. They knew or should have known that God had set the people of Israel apart to be a missionary people. God's whole purpose in setting Israel apart was that they might bear witness to the nations about God. And indeed, God made this rather easy for them because God strategically placed his people right at the crossroads of the world. If you were to look at where Judah or Jerusalem is located on a map, you can see this. The Israelites didn't have to go to the nations. Now, sometimes they did, like Jonah was sent to the Ninevites. But instead, the nations especially in the Old Covenant, the nations came to them. Again, just look at a map and you'll see this. God placed his people at the heart of the ancient world. And so any ancient caravan traveling between Europe, Asia, and Africa would have to go through Israel to get where they were going. Strangers were always passing through the land of Israel. Israel. God put Israel at the center of the world so his holy people could bear witness to all the other nations of the world. So they could come and see for themselves this people that God had set apart. This people that God had made to be a nation of priests. See, that's what Israel was all about. Israel was chosen by God to be a nation of priests to minister to the Gentiles. 
to minister God's truth, to share God's truth, to share God's blessing with the Gentiles. Moses taught the Israelites this was the reason for their existence. If you go back to Moses' farewell sermon, the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses tells the people, he says, be careful to obey all of God's commandments. So when the nations around see you, when the nations all around Israel see an obedient Israel, Moses says they will be amazed and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation has God so near to it? And what other nation has such wise laws and statutes? When they see an obedient Israel, the nations will marvel and say, wow, their God must be wiser than all the other gods because they have such an amazing law they're keeping. Their God must be greater and wiser than all the other gods of the nations. That was Moses teaching Israel about the reason for her existence. Isaiah taught the same reality in his day. In Isaiah chapter 60, he commanded Israel to arise and shine. They were to be the light of the world. They were to shine the light of God's wisdom and the light of God's love on the Gentile nations round about them. They were to be like a lighthouse shining out into the darkness, showing the world there's a different way. There is a God who loves you and who cares about you. There's a God who forgives iniquities. There is a merciful God. Come to him and know him. And the nations were supposed to be drawn to that light like moths to a light shining in the darkness. That was Israel's purpose. That was Israel's reason for existing. God would use Israel to draw the nations to himself. Israel had a missionary purpose. Israel was a missional people. Israel was to be a nation of missionaries. All of this, of course, tied back to God's original call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, I will bless you. And Abraham, through you, ultimately through your seed, through your son, the one who will come, we know him as Jesus. Through you, Abraham, I will bless all the families of the earth. Why did God call Abraham and set him apart and form a nation out of him? So that all the nations could be blessed with the same blessing that God gave to Abraham. So they could share that blessing with others. God created Israel to bless the nations. God created Israel to be his delivery mechanism, as you, if you can think of it this way. God created Israel to be his messengers delivering his message of blessing to the nations. That's why Israel existed. To share God's blessing with the world. Israel always had a blessing, always had a mission to the nations. To share God's blessing. Now what happened? Did Israel in the Old Covenant carry out this mission consistently and faithfully? Well, if you know your Old Testament, uh, you know that was not the case at all. Israel failed more often than not in that mission. And even some of those who did carry out the mission, like say Jonah, were really reluctant. Jonah was a really bad missionary. And that was representative of how much of Israel was throughout the Old Covenant period. Israel was supposed to minister to the other nations, but all too often she became like the other nations. Instead of calling them to worship the true God with her, Israel fell into idolatry and worshipped and served the gods of the nations. When it's all said and done, Israel was one big failure. She was given a mission and she failed to carry it out. Now, the church has inherited Israel's mission. We as the church are the new Israel. We are the Israel of God. 
We are the true family of Abraham. We are called to be the light of the world, to carry God's love and wisdom to the world. God has blessed us so we can share that blessing with others. God's plan is to change the nations. And God's plan to change the nations flows through his church. God's plan to change the nations flows through his church. God promises to convert the families and peoples of the world through the ministry of his church. And Zephaniah shows us how. Zephaniah shows us how God will do this. Zephaniah 3.9 says God will convert the nations to a pure speech, a pure confession about God. Then in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, Zephaniah shows us how God will do this, how God will use his people to accomplish this. This is, you could say, God's missionary strategy for his people. What kind of church does it take to fulfill this mission? What kind of church does it take to change the nations, to change the world? What do we need to do and to be to have success in the mission God has given to us? Zephaniah prophesies that God will use his church, or churches we could say, to change the nations. And Zephaniah, if you look at this passage carefully, you will see there are four key characteristics that God's people must have if we were to be successful in this mission. Four key characteristics that God uses in his people to change the nations. A church that changes the world, a church that converts the nations will have these four features. And I'll name them for you and we'll look at them. Catholicity, humility, integrity, and festivity. Those four characteristics. You want to be a church that is salt and light? You want to be a church that transforms the culture? Look no further. Zephaniah sketches out for us how it is to be done. What a world-changing church looks like. What a nation-transforming church looks like. And I think it's actually pretty easy to see all of these in the text. Uh, If if you look carefully at the text, they're just going to jump right out at you. And taken together, they give us a recipe for fulfilling the mission God has given to us. There's more here, certainly, than a single local church can do. But this gives us an idea of what we ought to be aiming for, what is most important, what we should be striving for as a church. So let's start with Catholicity. Obviously, that's not a word Zephaniah uses. It's not even a word found in the Bible, but it's a good word to summarize a theme that we find in Scripture. That word Catholic means universal. We need to know this word because it's in the creed that we recite together every week, the Nicene Creed. Catholicity is the term that has been used going back to the earliest days of the post-apostolic church after the apostles. It's a term that has been used to describe the oneness of the church. How the one church includes people from many different nations, many different ethnicities, many different languages, and we are all united together as one in Christ. Many nations are gathered into one church. That's the vision here. Ezekiel had this same kind of vision. Uh, Ezekiel had a vision where there is a tree representing the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Messiah when it comes into history. And Ezekiel says many birds representing the Gentiles, many birds will come and find rest and seek shelter and make a nest 
in that tree. So you have one tree with many birds, one church, many nations, one kingdom, many different ethnicities. That's the idea. That's the prophecy. That's the formula. When God says he will change the speech of the nations so they will speak with a purified lip, so they will all call upon the name of the Lord, what does Zephaniah go on to say? He says they will serve him with one accord. As these nations are converted, what happens? They will serve the Lord with one accord. That's what Zephaniah says uh, in this prophecy. One accord is an interesting translation. More literally what this says is they will serve the Lord with one shoulder. Or they will serve the Lord, we could say, shoulder to shoulder. That's what Zephaniah really describes. Men standing shoulder to shoulder. That's how they will serve the Lord. The people gathering from these many different nations. What does it mean to serve God shoulder to shoulder? Well, think about the captains of a football team walking out for the coin toss. They walk out shoulder to shoulder. They present a united Front. They walk out shoulder to shoulder to show that they are one. They are a team. They're going to work together to win. That's what the church should be like. All of God's people standing shoulder to shoulder, presenting a united front, working together to win. One of the reasons the church is so weak in our day is because she is so divided. A divided church is easily conquered by the world. A divided church has very little influence. A divided church cannot speak to the culture with one voice. And so the truth that the church is speaking gets drowned out. It gets lost in a cacophony of other voices. Now, this doesn't mean that we just jettison all liturgical and theological differences amongst God's people Any unity, any Catholicity worth having is going to be a unity grounded in the truth of Scripture. It's going to be a unity that is grounded in and rooted in Scripture. Unity can be hard to come by for just that reason. It means we have to get together with Christians who don't think like we do. We've got to wrestle together with the text of Scripture over an open Bible. That's how you get unity. It doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. But I'll tell you this. Many of the divisions that exist among Christians today, I would say especially many of the divisions that exist among Christians in America, that have arisen in American history, have been unnecessary divisions. Some divisions are necessary. Many that have happened are not necessary. In fact, they've been counterproductive and they have weakened the Christian witness in our land. Zephaniah says God's plan for the church is Catholicity. God's plan for the church is oneness. God's plan for the church is unity. That we would all serve God as one, shoulder to shoulder. This is what Jesus prays for in John chapter 17. Jesus prays that all of his disciples would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And then Jesus even goes on to say that through this oneness, the the oneness of his people, as his disciples all live together as one, in this way, the world will come to know that Jesus is the one sent by the Father. Jesus connects Catholicity to the success of the church's mission in his prayer there in John 17. Zephaniah is doing the same thing. The church that changes the world is a united church. Remember, the background to Zephaniah's prophecy here is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And remember what God said there in Genesis 11 about these pagans as they gathered together to build their tower to the heavens. 
God says because they're united, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. If these people are united together, in their false faith, if they're united together, nothing they intend will be too hard for them. Now here's the thing. If pagans who are united have such great power, how much more is that true of the people of God when we are united? How much power would a united church of the Lord Jesus Christ have? A united church can do anything. A united church, for a united church, nothing is impossible. A united church can even disciple the nations. A united church can do anything it proposes to do, including converting the nations to Christ. Nothing will be too hard for us if we are united. And it's interesting, too, this unity that Zephaniah calls for is especially manifested in worship. Verse 10 makes this clear. From beyond the rivers of Cush, so this is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, this is going deep into the heart of Africa, where Zephaniah is talking about. From beyond the rivers of Cush, worshipers shall bring my offering. Zephaniah is saying Gentiles in faraway places will worship Yahweh. The goal of God's redemptive acts in history is always worship. God redeems in order to form a worshiping community. God redeems people in order to form them into a united worshiping community. Again and again, we see this in Scripture. Remember the Exodus? Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Why? Why does Moses want the people set free from Pharaoh's reign? Moses says, let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God wants to redeem us from your hand, Pharaoh, so we can go and worship him together. The goal of the Exodus was a worshiping community. The goal of Christ's redemption is a worshiping community. That we would be one together as we worship the Lord. We would worship with one accord. This is always the way God redeems us in order to make us into a community of worshipers. And so in Zephaniah's view, united and universal worship is God's goal for the human race. One speech, one shoulder, one offering. One speech calling together upon the Lord with the same confession. One shoulder working together as a team because there is strength in unity. One offering united together in worship. So the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, is the way Isaiah puts it. That is Zephaniah's prophecy. One speech, one shoulder, one offering. That's Catholicity. Catholicity expressed in worship. Catholicity that gives the church strength. Now go on to verses 11 and 12. The church will be used by God to fulfill Zephaniah's Vision of the future. But again, what kind of church will it be? It will be a church purified of all pride. It will be a church characterized by humility. The prideful, you could say, will be excommunicated. They'll be cut off and cast away. A humble church will remain. And will be that humble church, the, the humble people of God, who will fulfill the mission given to us. Look at verse 11. God says his people will not be put to shame in that day because God will remove the proud and arrogant so they will no longer be haughty in his holy mountain. 
Instead, as verse 12 goes on to say, God will make them a humble and lowly people who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. For the church to have success, she has to be purged of pride. Pride gets in the way of everything good. Pride corrupts worship. Pride divides people from one another, so it makes Catholicity impossible. Pride is a form of idolatry. Remember, again, the Tower of Babel stands in the background here, and the Tower of Babel was all about the the, the pride of men. It was about man's pride. It was about man making a great name for himself and man building his own stairway to heaven, the product of his own reason and strength. It was a project designed to flatter the pride of men. Pride cuts us off from every good thing. Babel was all about pride. So much of life today in our culture is all about pride. Man making a great name for himself. Humility, by contrast, opens the door to receiving everything good. What is the humble man like? Humility means you acknowledge who God is as creator and redeemer, and you acknowledge who you are as a dependent creature and a helpless sinner. Humility opens our eyes to the truth of who God is and who we are. And so humility opens the door to grace. The humble man casts himself upon God's mercy. He confesses his sin and he seeks forgiveness. The humble man pursues holiness because he knows God's ways are best. He's not wise in his own eyes. He doesn't trust himself. He's humble. He's humble before the word of the Lord. And so he's open to correction and guidance from outside of himself. That's what Zephaniah is saying here. The community must be purged of pride. What kind of church does God use to change the nations? One that is humble and therefore holy. See, in the Bible, humility and holiness always go together. Zephaniah shows us this. In fact, it's interesting to see the associations that Zephaniah makes. Zephaniah associates the arrogant with shame. The prideful deny that they have any shame, but that is their shame. They're brought to shame for that reason. But God says the humble will never be put to shame. God will exalt the humble. Zephaniah says the humble will trust in the name of the Lord. They will seek refuge in him. They will be hidden in the Lord so no judgment can come upon them. Zephaniah here is describing a people who are free from all guilt and free from all shame. When you humble yourself before the Lord, he takes away your guilt and he takes away your shame. And when guilt and shame are taken away, what do you have left? You have this humble and happy and holy people. And that's the kind of community God will use to change the world. It's really interesting. We didn't read this far into the passage. But down in verse 15, the Lord says he will take away all the judgments against you, all the judgments against his people. So, again, their guilt is going to be removed. When you are guilty, that means you deserve punishment. When you are guilty, that means that, objectively speaking, justice requires your condemnation. God says here, he will take away the judgments against us. You are guilty as charged. All you can do before God is plead guilty. You are guilty as charged, but God says, I will clear your name. In my mercy, I will forgive your sins. And, of course, how will God do this? By providing a substitute who will take the punishment and the condemnation you and I deserve. A guiltless one who will bear that guilt, who will bear our guilt, and take that punishment we deserve for our sake. 
God takes away our guilt, but you know what? God also takes away shame. Guilt is outside of us in the sense that it's an objective thing. Shame is within us. Guilt deals with the legal consequences of sin. Shame comes from all the ways our own sin and the sins of others have crippled us and left us in bondage. All the mental and emotional and psychological scars that sin leaves on us. That's what constitutes our shame. God promises here to take away guilt and to take away our shame. Of course, shame goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and their sin in the Garden of Eden. They brought shame on themselves. And, of course, they brought shame on all their descendants. All those downstream would inherit that shame. Of course, Adam and Eve tried to hide their shame with fig leaves, but they couldn't. We've added our own acts of shame to their original act of shame. But what is God doing for his people here? According to Zephaniah, he is removing that shame. The fig leaves couldn't cover shame, but Christ does cover the shame. God clothes us in Christ and that covers our shame. The humble have their shame covered. That's our hope. That's what Zephaniah is describing here. The Lord is determined to have a guilt-free, shame-free people. A people, therefore, who are humble, and because they're humble, they're holy and they're happy. God is determined to have a humble, holy, and happy people for himself. What characterizes this humility? The humble man learns to hate his sin. In fact, he hates his own sin more than anyone else's. A lot of us hate our sin, but we hate other people's sin even more than our own. And, of course, that sets us up for being prideful. We think of ourselves better. Pride sets us up for a fall. No, hate your own sin more than you hate anybody else's. The humble man is repentant. The humble man boasts in God, not in himself. The humble man is proud, but he's proud of Jesus. He's not proud of his own accomplishments. He's proud of what Jesus has accomplished. That is his boast. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I will boast only in the cross. Paul was a prideful man, but his pride was in the cross of Christ. And that's what Zephaniah is describing here. A humble people who will acknowledge openly their utter dependence upon the Lord's mercy. People who will call upon the Lord and trust in the Lord. The humble man seeks to make God's name great. And for that reason, God makes his name great. That is humility. Zephaniah here is telling us that the church that changes the world will be a humble church. This is not a kind of strategy that marketers and and, and, and strategists and consultants would come up with. You're telling me humility is the key to the church's effectiveness? Zephaniah would say, yes, you want to be a world-changing church, be humble. This humility is not weakness, no, not at all. This humility, in fact, produces true strength and resilience and grit and courage. Because God preserves the humble. And God tears down the proud. God exalts the humble and he shames the proud. God will make his humble people to stand. Humility is a key mark of the church that is effective in its mission. Humility gives rise to integrity. I've already hinted at this, but I think you see this especially in verse 13. They, that is, the, the, the people that God will purify and purge. They will do no injustice Zephaniah says they will speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. What is Zephaniah saying here? A a, a church that God will use to change the world does not participate in the injustices of the world. 
A church that falls into the injustices of the world can never be effective in transforming the world. It's become like the world, so of course it can't change the world. The world has changed the church. Injustice here refers to anything that is unrighteous, anything in our public or private lives that is contrary to God's word. Churches that are compromised with the world cannot change the world. That's what Zephaniah is saying here. You want to be a church that converts the nations? You cannot participate in worldly injustice. We've got to be honest here. All too often, the influence flows in the wrong direction. Instead of the church discipling the city, the city disciples the church. The church becomes worldly. The salt loses its saltiness. The light that is supposed to shine through the church grows dim. Because the church clouds that light and, and blocks that light. Obviously, in the mainline, so-called liberal, progressive churches, this has happened. They are completely overrun with worldliness. If there is a rainbow flag hanging out front, then obviously the world has won that battle. That church has fallen and has become a synagogue of Satan. But to be honest with you, more theologically conservative, traditionalist churches can be overrun with worldliness as well. Maybe the worldliness takes a a different form, a different shape, but it's still there. And, And if you think about it, a lot of times, even in conservative circles, the kind of entertainment that dominates our lives, the way we use social media, our tendency to amuse ourselves to death, as it were, Our immodest dress, our foul language, our propensity to tell gossip and lies, our discomfort or embarrassment over the Bible's teaching on, say, men and women and sex and other controversial topics, our lapses into sexual sin, our dishonesty in daily life, our foolish stewardship of our resources, our laziness, our misuse of alcohol or other substances, our greed that chokes out tithing and generosity. All of this is just worldliness and injustice. And in more conservative, traditionalist-type churches, these kinds of sins are all over the place. And I'll tell you, our congregation is not immune to any of these things. These same temptations, these same sin patterns can afflict us. We can lapse into worldliness. We can participate in the injustices of the world. Zephaniah says if a church is going to play its part in converting the nations, it must reject hypocrisy and it must strive for integrity. When we are what we say we are, that's integrity. When we're not what we say we are, that is hypocrisy. Zephaniah says we must do away with worldly injustice. In fact, I think it's really interesting. Verse 13 returns to the issue of speech because our words are such a great test of our integrity. Because our words reveal whether or not we have self-control. The words are a window unto the heart. The Lord here says he will purify the speech of his people so they speak no lies. So no deceit is found in their mouths. What does this mean? It means they will speak the truth about God. They won't exchange the truth about God for Satan's lies. So they'll speak the truth about God. It means they'll speak the truth to one another in love, of course. And it means we'll speak the truth in our worship of God. Nows that were once full of blasphemy, Isaiah's, Zephaniah's already chronicled that, those mouths that were once full of blasphemy, now they will be full of praise to the living God. People will make a right use of their mouths, a right use of their speech. 
Mouths that were once full of cursing will now bless. God is going to transform the tongues of his people. So I ask you today, is your tongue being transformed? Is the way you speak being changed? Are you being converted in your speech to a pure and honest speech? Again, words are a window onto your heart. What do your words say about your heart? What do they reveal? What do they manifest about who you are? The kind of people God uses to change the world are people who are committed to righteousness inside and out, in word and in deed. They are people of integrity, and this integrity is reflected in their speech. And finally, from the end of verse 13 and 14, we come to festivity. This is obviously the most fun one to talk about here in terms of these Things that Zephaniah gives us. What kind of church fulfills this mission to the nations? A church that is characterized by Catholicity, humility, integrity, and yes, festivity. The church is to be characterized by festivity. Look at what Zephaniah says about festivity. He says at the end of verse 13, God's people shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. This is a people at ease, a people who are enjoying God's gifts and God's blessings. Psalm 23 is probably in the background of this passage. Zephaniah is saying God's people will be safe and secure because God is with them. We're like grazing sheep because the Lord is our shepherd. He's making us lie down by quiet waters. He's making us lie down in the green grass. We can enjoy his blessings without fear Because we are the people of his flock, the sheep of his pasture. We have the Lord as our good shepherd. We have total security in God's love. We can take great comfort in his care for us. This is a picture of security. It's also really a picture of prosperity. One very common picture you have in the prophets is that of God's people under the blessing of God, under the reign of the Messiah, living quiet and peaceful lives. Lives of quiet peace and quiet joy. Here Zephaniah sounds a lot like Micah. In Micah chapter 4, verse 4, the prophet says, and again, this is speaking about what will happen under the reign of the Messiah. He says, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. He's saying these are people who are enjoying the blessing of God, the favor of God, the gifts of God. If you go even further back, you really can say that pictures like this, what you have in in Zephaniah 3 here, really these are pictures of Eden restored. Prophetic pictures of Eden restored. The Garden of Eden was originally a, a place of plenty, a place of peace and prosperity, a place of grateful enjoyment of God's gifts. And Zephaniah tells us Messiah's reign will lead us back to that. Messiah's reign will lead us back to a kind of paradise Restore. The book of Proverbs holds this out to us as our hope. Proverbs describes providential patterns in God's world, the way God works and governs in his world. Proverbs doesn't teach a health and wealth gospel. There's not a guarantee. But Proverbs does teach us that all things being equal, if you live according to God's design, If you obey God and live according to God's design in your marriage and in your family and in your work and with how you use money, then things will go much better for you. Obedience leads to blessing. Scripture's clear about this all over. It's what's true here in Zephaniah. And and obedience leads to blessing not just for individuals, but for societies and nations. See, God's people should know how to live faithfully and joyfully in hard times 
and in good times. Sometimes it's actually harder to be faithful in good times than hard times. But Zephaniah here is describing good times and God's people enjoying God's blessings. One of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith in our day, I believe, is when we are humbly and gratefully enjoying God's blessing on our lives. When we have been blessed by God and we're happy about it, we're content and we're joyful. When our marriages are full of happiness, when our children are not sullen and angry all the time, but joyfully obedient and respectful to their parents, when we do our work each day, even the, the, the hard work we have to do each day, cheerfully, when we know how to celebrate the things in life that are worth celebrating, that is a witness. That is a witness to the truth of the gospel. True gospel blessing, true gospel prosperity is a blessing. It is a witness to God's word. When we live with this kind of joy and peace, But how often do God's people today stand out because of their joy and their peace? Because they live with gratitude and contentment. Frederick Nietzsche, that anti-Christian philosopher, said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. What would Zephaniah say about that? He'd be horrified by that. The redeemed ought to look redeemed. Because there is a Redeemer, the people he has redeemed need to look like it. Zephaniah would say we should show that joy. We should radiate with that peace and that joy. Nietzsche said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. May that never be said of us. May that never be said of Trinity Presbyterian Church. May everybody that comes here and witnesses how we live and how we interact and how things go in our families and in our work, may they see that we are redeemed by the peace and the joy That we demonstrate. May we enjoy whatever God provides. May we make the most of his gifts. May we be content with whatever he gives us. May we live the life he gives us each day to the fullest. May we live with the joy and peace of redemption. The joy and peace, the festivity that come from the kingdom of God. But that's not all. This festivity continues into verse 14. There's a command here to sing. To sing aloud, to shout, to rejoice with all our hearts. Now, we're going to go into this more next week as we wrap this passage up. We're going to come to what is really the most famous verse in Zephaniah. It's really the only famous verse in Zephaniah, I guess, you could say, verse 17, where God sings over his people. But here, we are commanded to sing. We are commanded to sing with joy. God wants his people to be full of joy, a joy that's not only spoken, but that must be sung. Because, you know, music has a peculiar power, doesn't it? I mean, the reality is you certainly, I hope, get something out of the pastor's sermon each week. But the reality is the things we sing, those are the things that stick with us the most. Music has a peculiar power. Martin Luther understood this. Listen to what Luther had to say about music. He said, I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. They forget thereby all anger, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. 
He says, experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that the devil's music is distasteful and insufferable, but my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to good music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. He says, the gift of language combined with the gift of song was only given to man to let him know that he should praise God with both word and music. He should proclaim the word of God through music. I think Luther is exactly right. There are some people who will say, well, music's dangerous because music's emotional. And music can be used to manipulate people's emotions. And it's true. Music can be used in evil ways to manipulate people. But music's connection with our emotions is not a bad thing. It's not a flaw. It's a design feature. That's really the whole point. It's God's design. God made us musical creatures and God made us emotional creatures. And God wants us to use music to draw out the best and purest emotions. The emotions that music evokes, if they are rooted in truth, then that is a good thing. God wants us to use music to evoke emotion and express emotion. He doesn't want us to be stoic. Music carries with it a a certain special spiritual energy. And, And it has this power to influence us. It can express and encourage joy in the right things. That's, you know, if you ask why does... TPC sing so much on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Why do we sing so much? This is why God has given us the gift of music to cultivate and shape and share our joy. We are commit. We are commanded in Scripture again and again to sing joyfully, to rejoice before God in song, to rejoice over what the Lord has done. Joyful singing is a central mark of. The church's life. It's a central feature of the Christian life. It's right at the heart of the church's culture. That's what Zephaniah is saying here. The church that changes the world is going to be a festive church. A church that rejoices before God in song. A church that enjoys God's good gifts. That can graze in the pasture while the Lord as shepherd watches over them. And a church that rejoices before God in song. That sings aloud with joy. That shouts aloud with joy. Because that kind of music is a weapon. That kind of music will bring down strongholds and cast out the devil and win us the victory. You see this again and again in Scripture. In an age so full of cynicism and pessimism and anger and despair, a joyful church, a festive church, a church that knows how to enjoy God's good gifts, a church that knows how to sing aloud with joy and to shout to God with joy, that is a tremendously powerful church. Now, it might sound like these four things taken together, Catholicity, humility, integrity, and festivity, sort of like they could form the vision statement of a church, doesn't it? I think that's really what Zephaniah is doing here. These are the core values, if you want to use modern language, that should shape any church community. And when a church, or really we could say when large numbers of churches are committed to these four things, what can we expect? We can expect the world to change. We can expect the nations to be converted. Let me leave you with this. This is Epiphany Sunday. 
And Epiphany celebrates those events early in the life of Jesus uh, and early in Jesus' public ministry that reveal or manifest who he is and what he came to do. Epiphany focuses on those things that have to do with the scope and purpose of his mission. So, for example, the Gentile Magi gathering at the stable with the Jewish shepherds the night that he was born reveals to us that Jesus came to be the king and savior, not just of Israel, but of the nations. Gentiles came to worship him. The water turned into wine at the wedding in Cana reveals he came to be the bridegroom of his people. He came to be the bridegroom to rescue the bride and to bring in an age of joy and celebration and feasting. As he unites his people to himself in a covenant of love, he came on this mission of love to redeem his bride. He's done that, and so now we can celebrate that. But see, these events, the events in Jesus' life, they not only reveal his mission, they also tell us something about the mission of the church. Because Jesus carries on his mission today through us. Now this task of converting the nations, this mission to the nations, has fallen to us. It's fallen to us to spread the cheer and the joy and the festivity of the wedding feast that Jesus inaugurated. We're to call on the nations to come and worship, to flow into the house of the Lord, to enjoy his gifts. There are no political solutions to spiritual problems. And the problems the world faces today are most certainly spiritual. In the church and in the church alone, the answer will be found. The church is the key to everything. You want to know why things are going so badly in our world today? It's because the church has lost her way. The church is central. We've got to recover what God has called us to be. The mission of Christ and the Spirit to the world flow through us. The love and light and wisdom of God are to flow through us out to the nations. That was Zephaniah's vision. That's Zephaniah's prophecy of the future. God using his church to convert the speech of the nations to a pure speech. In this glad epiphany season... Look for ways, let me challenge you, look for ways to practice Catholicity, humility, integrity, and festivity. Look for ways to further this mission, to put into practice these commitments, because this is how we minister to the world, this is how we change the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.